We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We are finishing chapter 5 today. And it's quite a doozy. Um, this is probably the most significant block of Jesus' teaching that's in the Bible, where Jesus tells us like it is. He tells us, you've heard this, but I tell you this. You're confused about this? Let me, let me illuminate this for you. So Jesus uh, goes through many different very practical topics, both for them and for us, and tells us what's really what. Uh, and so today we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who already love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a strong word from Jesus is in our minds. We've read it. It's your word to us. Pray that you would illuminate it, that we would leave this place with understanding, that we grow in grace and knowledge, that we'd learn how to follow not only what you said, but the example that you set. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll notice, if you're looking at a physical Bible, most of your Bibles will have a reference note uh, next to love your neighbor. In my Bible, that points you back to Leviticus 19.18. So it's saying this appears another place in the Bible, not just here in Jesus' words. And it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This idea of loving, uh, of showing love and mercy to your neighbor is both explicitly stated and generally affirmed in the testimony of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I do want you to know, however, there is no reference note by the words, hate your enemies. And that is because that particular idea does not appear in the Bible. This is one of the ones that we invented. It's one of the ones we're great at inventing. Jesus says here, you have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Jesus is teaching here about showing mercy and love to enemies and not hating your enemies is found and taught in several places in the Old Testament. So not only is it not taught to hate your enemies anywhere, it's actually affirmed to love your enemies and to treat them well. Uh, there is a, there's a chapter in Genesis 45, and this is the culmination of the story of Joseph. Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was a favored son of his father. He provoked jealousy in his siblings, and so his brothers decided to kill him. Plain and simple. That was their idea. Let's kill our brother. We're jealous of him. We don't like how our father favors him. Joseph, because of the mercy of one of his brothers, is not ultimately killed, but he's thrown into a well, and then he's taken out of the well, and instead, they were kind enough to sell him into slavery instead. 
So Joseph gets um, essentially sold into slavery. So not murdered, but forsaken and sold into slavery. And he spends an incredible story, just decades of his life in slavery, being wrongly accused of various things, ending up in jail. But because of God's sovereign providence in his life, he ends up in the king's service. He ends up being a high ruler, second only, only in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph, after all that his brothers have put him through, that has led to so much suffering and really destroying his life, there's a great famine in the land, and the brothers, along with everyone else, comes to Egypt. They stand before Joseph, who they don't recognize because he's wearing a face mask to protect from disease. No, they don't recognize him because they haven't seen him in a long time. They thought he was dead, probably. They certainly didn't think he could have ended up in the palace as a ruler in Egypt. And through a very dramatic story, and I'll leave it to you to read, we find out that Joseph isn't ready to do what many people would do to his brothers, to kill them, to sell them up the river, whatever, to, to at least not give them food and provisions. But he, he reveals himself to be their brother Joseph, and he, he not only forgives them, but he blesses them and, and lavishes on them favor and riches and food and honors their father. And they're still terrified. They're thinking, he's just doing being nice because our dad's still alive. But no, it's, it was true. He had forgiven them. He loved them. He had loved people that were his enemies that tried to kill him. And he had figured out a way to do that despite enormous odds when he came into power. It's an amazing story. And the Bible speaks about this story very heroically. Joseph is a hero of the faith because he, uh, he sh- could have had revenge on them, but he chose to forgive and lavish love on his enemies, people that made himself his enemies. There's a passage in 1 Samuel 24-7, one of several places where King David, who's being chased by King Saul, David, you remember, had been anointed as king by, by the prophet. Saul is jealous of this. Another similar story. He's trying to kill David so that David cannot be there and he can continue to rule. David has so many opportunities to kill Saul as he's fleeing for his life. But he not only lifts a hand against, doesn't lift a hand against Saul, he won't let his, his men lift a hand against Saul. He would never, he, and he honored King Saul and said, let's not hurt God's anointed. Here's a man who, like Joseph, is being glorified in the Bible as someone who had refused opportunities to take vengeance on someone who he had a right to take vengeance on, in a way. I mean, he was the anointed king. But because of his fear of God, because of the love that he had, and because of his respect for God's anointed, he refused to lift a hand against Saul. And the Bible praises that many times David holds his men back and says, don't lift a finger against God's anointed. Because in a way, in this passage, in this Old Testament story, David is loving his enemy. And he's honoring, and I imagine praying, and we, we read in the Psalms, many Psalms he prays as he's fleeing for his life, um, as he's being persecuted. I found a real gem of a story in Second Kings 6.22, which I had not really dwelled on before. It's a real gem. This is a story of Elisha defeating the army of the king of Aram. So Aram was one of Israel's, Israel's great enemies. And they came uh, and, uh, and in a very unconventional way by praying 
that these people be blinded as they were coming to take Elisha's life, the prophet of God in Israel. He prayed that they would, their army would be blinded, and the blindness throws the army of Aaron, Aram into confusion. So, and Elijah calls out to them, and he says, you know, you're confused, you're blinded, come follow my voice, I'll bring you to the person you're seeking. They go, okay, they followed him. In their panic, they kind of followed after Elisha's voice, and they follow Elisha right into the center of Samaria, and they're basically surrounded by the army of God's people and Elisha. And this is the perfect moment to take vengeance on these enemies of God's people, uh, the, the, king of the, the, the Aram people. And uh, Elisha prays to God again and says, okay, God, give them their sight back. Everyone gets their sight back. They look around and they're surrounded by, by the army of the people of God and Elisha. And then, uh, you know, Elisha is the, the prophet who's kind of advising the king, right? That's how things worked in, in this time, time period. So the king says, this is great. Thanks for doing this. Can we kill everybody now? And Elisha says, no, actually, let's feed everyone a, a giant feast and send them back to their master. Just a remarkable story. So all the, all the armies of Israel prepares a feast for the arm, the, their enemy troops and they eat this giant feast and drink their fill, and they send them back to their king. And guess what? They never heard from the king of Aram again. It's a really neat little story. It's tucked into the Bible. I think that should be, get some more Sunday school time, you know, along with like Noah's Ark and all those. That's a cool story. So, once again, we have this opportunity for vengeance, like Joseph had, like David had, and this godly person saw beyond the bloodthirst into this this, uh, he stumbled into this love your enemy situation and in doing so creatively undid some crazy violence that could happen and I had never made the connection before as I said I hadn't dwelt on this story much before but in Psalm 23 5 it says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies my cup overflows you anoint with my head with oil my cup overflows when you think about that story uh, they prepared a table of their enemies in the presence of their enemies, and then they, they went back to their people, never to be heard from in a bad way again. It's amazing. We're going to reference that story again later on. Proverbs 25:21 sounds a lot like a quote from Jesus. It says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. This beautiful little gem hidden in the Proverbs. That's what Elisha and the armies did for the king of Aram and his troops. Exactly what they did. It wasn't metaphorical. Um, give them water, give them drink. And Paul, the, the great apostle, references this verse again in Romans 12.20. He says it exactly as it's written. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So that's a binding commandment on the followers of God in our day as well. So because this phrase, hate your enemy, does not actually appear in the Bible, it's a really curious and strange thing that Jesus said in our passage today, and I quote, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that leaves you with the question, where have people heard this phrase, hate your enemy? Where have they gotten this from that Jesus references here? How have they learned that? I think, unfortunately, the answer is that they did not learn it. They didn't have to. 
they, they thought this way already and spoke disdain for their enemies already like it was their native tongue. That's just what people do. In fact, it's what we all do. From our greatest enemies to the enemies in our own household, it's what we all do. It's as natural as breathing for us to hate our enemies, to have disdain for people, to desire to avoid people, to not want to talk to people or see people or risk bumping into people because we just don't like them. Unfortunately, it doesn't, that tendency does not change just because you're a Christian. This is something we have to work at. It's a reflex we have in us. In his book, The Church of Us Versus Them, David Fitch writes, Humans are really enemy-making machines. It's kind of what we do. It's one of our specialties. And I wonder if anyone would want to disagree with me over that phrase after the last 12 months of COVID-19, a nasty U.S. election, maybe your last Thanksgiving dinner that you had. Especially when we are under the thumb of suffering, we turn on people, people we know, people we don't know, and we find ourselves making enemies. Again, it's kind of what we do. If we don't do this naturally, just by, by nature, all we need to do is turn on any news network, and you take your pick, and whoever our favorite nightly echo chamber happens to be that night, that network will make enemies for us and cause us to become seething with anger towards people we don't know in minutes. Either that or we will become with, filled with disdain for certain people or groups of people in the world as media personalities brand and dismiss entire groups of people as being enemies. If the media echo chamber doesn't help you make enemies, just join Facebook or Twitter. That's a great place to make enemies. You will soon not only know who your enemies are, you will also find out who considers you to be an enemy who hasn't said it yet to your face. So many times I read things people post on Facebook, and I say to myself, well, they seem like a really nice person when I talk to them in, in person, but I'm sure that they'd really hate me if they heard what I really thought about this topic. And to this I say, welcome to hell. Can I take your coat? This is what it's like. It's, it's like a living hell to be in this vitriolic, hate-filled environment. How about in times of war, like after 9-11? People always talk about how the country was united in this national sphere of togetherness and brotherhood. But this momentary coming together vaulted us into bombing many civilians who we were told were our enemies in another country. Christians and non-Christians, liberals and conservatives, all amen that action without nearly enough thought for the collateral damage that would happen. And in case you didn't know, 7,186 Iraqi civilians over two months in Baghdad were killed in the bombing in, our country, in their country. That's babies nursing on their mothers, children holding hands and playing in the field, men who were powerless to protect anybody, just vaporized. But we still look to this time directly after 9-11 as if it were the good old days of unity in our country. Once again, the television and the internet assist us in helping us identify our enemies, and then our leaders take action on our behalf as the populace of the country. In fact, the only time the enemy-making machine pauses inside of our country is when we are united together in hating an enemy outside of our country. That's about the only time when we have peace from hating one another. 
And that's happened several times in the last even just 100 years and throughout history. This is not a United States problem. It's a problem of every nation. But these national and world enemies who are puppeted before us, nothing comp- these, are, these are, are bad, but nothing compares to the enemies we have inside of our own communities, inside of our own cities, inside of our own homes, and inside of our own churches. We make enemies in these places as well. We have all participated in that. I have heard myself mouth, I've gestured and journaled the most ungracious, unkind things about the people I love and the people I serve and the people that are around me and people I don't know. We all do this. We all do this. I'm sure you do too. So I think we need to do ourselves a favor and not try to pretend that this is not what we do because we do. And Christians do it and we do it inside our church with our own community here. We can't get it right here. How are we going to get it right out there? But it's not just our national quote-unquote enemies or the, the community enemies we have or, or church enemies or even the enemy of our spouse or our children that we have from time to time. I found that the enemy-making machine is such a powerful concept that you end up being your own enemy many times. It's like the prophetic band lit from the 90s. They said, it's no surprise to me I am my own worst enemy. And more thoughtfully, a singer that I really enjoy, he said, how do you win when the war that you're in is just you against you? You've got to learn to love your enemies too. So be kind to yourself. The enemy-making machine turns ourselves on ourselves. And we are unkind, ungracious, even to ourselves. So in response to this giant enemy-making machine, both internal and external, both microscopic and worldwide, I say with the Apostle Paul, What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the way we get delivered from this machine. Romans 7, 24, 25. There is hope for us hopeless haters. And it is Jesus Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit. It has to start in the household of God. We have to deal with our sin problem. The internal and external enemy-making machine, the part of us that has heard God say, love your neighbors, and has assumed, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbors, that must mean I'm supposed to hate my enemies. Just like the people who originally heard the teaching from Leviticus. If we don't deal with this, we're killing each other and ourselves, living in a body of death. That's what it is. So like us, when Israel heard God's command to love their neighbor as themselves, in their minds, they assumed the inverse. God has commanded us to love our neighbors. That must mean we have permission to hate our enemies. But God has and hasn't given any such permission to us. And instead has modeled mercy and love for enemy throughout the Old Testament stories I shared and the witnesses that we've seen. He has commanded us to love one another. I think one of the main reasons Jesus came, have you ever ever wondered why Jesus came and lived a whole life and died? Like, what was the reason for that? What was the, the method? You know, we talk so much about the need for the blood of Jesus to cover our sins so that we can be in right relationship with God, which is true. But if that was the case, you know, why did Jesus have to live a full life? Why didn't Herod just shed Jesus' blood when he was a tiny baby? I think the reason that Jesus came is what he taught us in today's passage, that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That we may, be, we may be children of our Father in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, in this passage, Jesus is not just appealing to examples of people having mercy and showing love to other people, as in the Old Testament examples. But he's appealing to God's own posture of mercy and love towards both evil and good people. God's mercy and gift of grace causes God to exert care over wicked and good people. And in the end, our gospel says we are all saved by grace as a gift from God through the cross of Christ. So none of us is actually technically good, but have received grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy from God anyway. So here Jesus has removed all excuse to not love our enemies with the gospel story of our own lives. God is saying God's had mercy and grace on you which is his love manifested. You did not earn it. And in fact, anything, uh, if there was any sense in the world, you would pay for your own sins. But because of God's great love, he's chosen to take the weight of your sin on himself to pay for your sins so that you might go free. God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and we are to be like God, like the great people of God who were commended in the past, like King David, like Elisha, like Joseph. But ultimately, all of them pale in comparison to the one who commended their loving actions for their enemies, God himself. Jesus Christ, think about this, this is why Jesus came and lived and and suffered like he did and died. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, our Messiah, allowed himself to be put to death without retaliation by his personal and political enemies while praying forgiveness and blessing on those very people who were killing him. Jesus whispered to his, through his clenched teeth, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Why did God not just shed the blood of baby Jesus? Because God needed to live a perfect life through, through Christ. And he needed to show us the way of love and the way of non-retaliation. The way of loving enemies actively and praying for those who persecute us. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't modeled for us to the point of death. How, how, far, how much further can you go than death in modeling a teaching? Jesus did it. He went to his death on the cross. And as he was being hammered to that cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As Paul says in Romans 5, we were enemies of God, dead in our sin, and just at that moment when we were at our very worst in rebellion against God, Jesus came and gave his life for us just at that moment. Even us. The gospel, the cross, it's meant, it's God putting an end to the enemy-making machine that's so alive and well in our world. He puts an end to it at the cross so that people are without excuse when they make lesser enemies of other people. He takes away all excuses. If God, who is the only perfect man who ever lived in Christ, loved his enemies, prayed for his enemies, and died for the good of his enemies, who insisted on calling his friends, as we spit in his face, Jesus did this. And since God raised Jesus Christ to life after three days after Jesus did this, it's a huge message to us. This is the way. Walk in it. No more hating your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. God will vindicate everybody. We are not to hate our enemies. We are to actively love them. The cross is the end of violence, the end of retribution. It's the end of the enemy-making machine. It's the ultimate 
stick in the spokes of the enemy making machine bicycle. My, I remember when I got my brand new bike when I was like 15, my cousin thought it would be funny to sit on the side of the road and stick the stick in the wheel. And I flew off my bike and I was full of rage at my cousin for doing this, mostly because I was mad about my bike getting scratched up, but he effectively put an end to my ride. And that's why I think the cross of Christ, when we really process it properly, I think it puts an end to the enemy making machine. If the, the machine has gears in it, the cross of Christ gunks those gears up so they can't move anymore. Since God raised Christ to life after three days, we know this is the way to walk. And because Jesus told us to walk this way, we know it's the way to walk. As if you needed more proof. This is the end of violence, the end of retribution. The enemy, machine, the enemy making machine has to die, and it has to die at the cross for every person. Jesus reasons with us in today's passage. In verse 45, 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Jesus is asking, if people who do not know God are able to sincerely love people who love them back, or people that are like them, like their people, then why would you hold your love for people who, you, who are like you and who love you back, why would you hold it up and say, mission accomplished, I'm a really good person, I love the people that love me? That's not a victory. That's not a victory. Even people that have no touch from the Holy Spirit do that. Jesus is calling us to something deeper. To, lo to love those who hate us. To greet people that in our flesh we're crawling, hoping we don't bump into them. And don't tell me that there's not people that you feel that way about. I know there is. Because that's what we do. This is who we are. It's okay. Jesus is asking, not, not asking that just because we're nice to certain people that we not consider that to be mission accomplished. Enemy making machine broken. If we follow Jesus, the crucified and forgiving one, we have to do better. We have to put to death the enemy making machine by visualizing the one who, as he was being crucified, said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As the one who looked over to his right and saw people casting dice, dividing up his clothes and taking the, 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 his garments as he was dying on the cross, without compassion, without care. We have to picture that one. In the cross and at the cross, the evil powers of the world did their worst, killed the, worst, the best person who ever lived, the only good person who ever lived, and he forgave them while they did it and rose again. And we have to do this with those who are most difficult for us to love, our enemies. And, we, and as we do this, we prove the power of the cross in our lives. So with all of this in mind, what is to be put in place of our natural bent towards making enemies? How does Jesus advise us to destroy the enemy-making machine? So here are some sticks that we can put into the wheels of the bicycle of the enemy-making machine as it barrels down the road. Number one, Jesus says, love your enemies. Number two, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Number three, Jesus says, be perfect as God is perfect. So first, love your enemies. The Bible teaches in 1 John 4.16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is one of the most quoted sentences of the Bible that people use, certainly in the New Testament. But there's a large separation between what, what John meant when he wrote that and what we hear when we hear it. You know, for us, the word love carries cultural baggage. And we often think 
thoughts of romance. We think thoughts of positive feelings. We think of, of sentimental things when we think of love. So when Jesus says, love your enemy, we're kind of at a total loss because we really do not feel good things towards the people who we consider to be our enemies. And that's just the way we are. We can't help many times. We can't often control how another person makes us feel. Many times it's just our reaction. Uh, many, many, sometimes people just irritate you by nature. You almost can't help feeling this way towards them. But when Jesus says love, he's not talking about a sentimental, romantic feeling or goodwill. He's talking about an act of the will. He's talking about choosing to do something. He's saying to, that you are to love your enemy, you are to will the good of your enemy, even above yourself, even to the point where it's difficult for you. To love is to act in a manner, to, 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 to will yourself to act in a manner that is in the best interests of another person, even the best interests of your enemy. Even if that person resists your loving action, you press forward. To love one's enemy will, look like our, will not look like our culture's idea of love, but will look like the self-giving love of Jesus Christ that we see in Philippians 2. In that passage, it says that Jesus did not use his power and status as God. He didn't use his equality with God to his own advantage. That's what that literally means. But made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant and going to death, even death on the cross for us. That's the self-giving love of Christ on display. Jesus used all of his power for the good of people and Jesus did not die for himself. He died for us. He saw our need, and he met it at a great cost to himself. So to love somebody, as Jesus says, is to use your will to think about the needs of your enemies, what they might be, and leverage all of your social power, your financial power, your time, your very self for the good of your enemy, even if they resist it. This is what Jesus means by love your enemies. Second, he says, pray for those who persecute you. So instead of ignoring, retaliating, or otherwise despising people, or certain people, on the sidelines, Jesus tells us to pray for people who are persecuting us, actively persecuting us. This is especially relevant to the church at this time, where after just a little while, uh, Rome figured out that the church was not to be an exception to their policing, and they started arresting and putting Christians to death, and there was a huge persecution. This is a real persecution that was happening. It was going to come, and it was coming. And in this environment, Jesus says, pray for people who are persecuting you. Whether that's overtly persecuting you, or perhaps they don't know they're doing it, but you feel persecuted by them, Jesus says, regardless of their intention, pray for them. I love the advice that Rob Reamer gives in his book, Soul Care. And he advises Christians, when they're thinking about their enemies, whoever they might be, to pray on their enemies the same blessings they would desire for their own life. I think this is great practical advice. So whatever you want for yourself, pray that blessing on your enemy. If you want a good marriage, pray that your enemy has a great marriage. If you want a great, great children, pray for your enemy's children. If you want health and abundant finances and a rich community, pray these blessings on your enemy by an act of your will is what Rob advises. And as you do this, the Holy Spirit begins to put a stick in the spoke of that machine 
It can't keep going forward and barreling on forward the way it's been barreling forward when you begin to pray for your enemies. And that's why I think Jesus advises it. Love your enemies. Think about ways to offer the self-giving love of Jesus to your enemies. And number two, pray for your enemies. Pray blessings on their lives. And allow the Holy Spirit to disentangle your enemy-making heart and change the way that you are. As it says in Colossians 2.15 of Christ, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So as Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the powers of his enemies. He made a public spectacle of them. and He was vindicated by God and rose again. This is the model we are following. We are disarming the power of hatred and the enemy-making machine as we pray blessings on our enemies in love. And again, this is not something anyone feels ooey-gooey about. No one wants to do this. No one wants to do this in their flesh. And Christians, not even Christians want to do this because Christians are not perfect. You don't, you just don't get perfect by becoming someone who believes that Jesus died for your sins. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's the beginning of a life of growing and humbling yourself and there's all kinds of steps in that journey, but I haven't met, I haven't met another Christian that doesn't struggle with this issue. And, and it's usually like the people that you think they love the most. It's like in their own house. You know, we struggle with having enemies. We struggle, we're at odds with each other. And um, you, you disarm the power and the authorities of darkness, the same powers that put Jesus to death by loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, and God does a work and disentangles you from the machine of hatred. The third bit of advice is almost laughable. And I think that even when I read, read this, you thought, oh, I, I don't really believe that one. Jesus said, finally, be perfect as God is perfect. That's the, uh, the final sentence in chapter 5. Be perfect as God is perfect. In the past, I've done some work on under, trying to understand what this means because, of course, you want something to aspire to. Um, but to, say, to tell you to be perfect is almost a discouraging moment. Like, well, okay. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to be perfect? As God is perfect. We know that God is all light. There's no darkness in him. So he's perfect. The word for perfect is this word called, uh, called teleos. And here's the definitions in the, the, uh, the Greek lexicon. Perfect means brought to its end, finished. Wanting nothing necessary to completeness. That which is perfect. Consummate human integrity and virtue of men. Full-grown adult of full age, mature. So in this passage, we're saying, become like God, who is the only fully formed, fully developed, fully finished personality in existence. God is not growing right now. He's not growing in love. He's not growing in patience. He is perfectly developed into the perfect personality. And, and, and the word perfect is implying a process that we would become, that we would become and begin a journey of becoming completed. Every time God has a person start in his path, he puts a seed in them of his word, and it's, it's like this journey where you are becoming completed over time. God's working on you, in other words. And God wants you to be brought to your destiny. He wants you to be brought to your end, to your growth. 
He wants you to have, as, this, as the lexicon says, consummate human integrity and virtue, to become full-grown, to stop being such a child, stop being such a teenager, stop being such an adult, stop being such a, you know, the most mature person you've ever heard of, and try to develop in this love of God that God has, full, has, has already fully developed in. So framed this way, and I think this is a really accurate understanding of the theology, it's like saying, grow into your destiny just as God is fully formed. You become fully formed. You become fully formed. This is not too high and lofty for you. This is not about being perfect. It's about growing. It's about developing. It's about becoming a full-grown adult and mature in Christ. And when you become closer to your destiny of maturity, you become more like God because God is fully formed and he has been forever. So if that makes any sense. Grow into your full potential. God's placed it in you and he's given you the provision of Christ for doing this. Not just his blood to cover your sin, but his example to be followed. So we have to do something. It's time to grow up. It's time to retire the enemy-making machine, become like God, and God, in his perfection, causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He calls us to do the same. Just to wrap it all up, in, in that story I referenced earlier, this story of Elisha with the armies of Aram, which I just find so delightful. I don't know how I don't remember the story. Um, the story of how he blinded the enemies of God only to give them their, their sight back and then feed them a giant feast when they were surrounded by their enemies then set them free to go back home. There's this interesting detail that I noticed, and this is more of a devotional detail than a deep theological one. So the king of Aram, Israel's enemy, has become very frustrated because no matter what plan he makes and where he moves his troops, somehow the army of Israel knows about it and thwarts his every move. And so he believes that he has a traitor in his leadership, which anyone would think. Um, and his, but the honest truth is, and his leadership tells him this, okay, here's the problem. Oh, king. Um, Israel has Elisha, and he's a prophet who hears from God, and God tells him all the things we're planning on doing, and so he's always ahead of us. They figured it out. They're like, there are no spies, there are no traitors. Um, it's God guiding the Israelites. So God is telling Elisha all of the moves of the opposing king in preparation for this ultimate feat of Elisha feeding and sending the army back to Aram unharmed, which was meant to show the people what God was like. And in the midst of this story, the king of Aram, as he accuses his army of spying, um, he, sa he says this phrase, Who among you is telling the king of Israel our every move? And picking it up in 2 Kings 6.12, it says, None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but grab onto that one sentence, no one is spying on you, my king. Elisha is telling the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. The very words you speak in your bedroom. The enemy-making machine is alive and well in Christians and non-Christians alike, and I can't help but think it is most fully revealed in the words that you say privately in your bedroom, either alone or with the one who is closest to you, never to be whispered to someone outside of that sacred trust. Shameful thoughts, shameful words, about other people who are made in God's image. God sees those thoughts. We're reminded here, God hears those most private words. He knows our hearts. God sees past your fake, big time. He doesn't consider that to be becoming perfect. 
he considers that to be becoming more and more fake over time. God knows how the enemy machine ticks. And God wants to work with us to put a stick in the spoke of that thing to keep it from wreaking havoc on yourself, on your life, on your community, against your wife or husband or kids, against people at work, against people at church, against national enemies we're told are enemies of our country, against those people, that group that's been grouped together and dismissed by our group who are different from us. God wants it to end. And he wants it to end with you. He wants it to end with you. He's given us the tools. Jesus already disarmed the powers and made a mockery of the enemy-making machine at the cross as he was praying and declaring his forgiveness for the people, both personal and political, who put him to death. And also whispering a word of forgiveness for anyone who would look to him and say, I'm a sinner. I'm part of the problem. And his blood on that cross is sufficient to cover even our sins so that we can be saved. And he says from this place of victory on the cross as he's dying, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Develop into someone who's fully developed like God is fully developed. Grow up that you might be sons and daughters of the Most High who causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. So may it be so. Let's pray as Julie comes to lead us in a closing song. Father, this message is so heavy on my heart. And uh, the words that we listen to and accept, the words that we say in the most private places, they reveal our hearts. You see them all. We want to be people there on Jesus' side of love, loving enemies, praying for those who persecute, leveraging all that we have for the good of the other. But Lord, it, our hearts are so dark and so, so, so twisted. And the machine is so alive and well. Help us, God, to become disentangled from this system to really begin to love, to really love both those who love us, those who are like us, those who hate us, those who are different from us. May we love like Jesus. May your victory at the cross continue forward into our current day, and may we see victory of loving enemy overcome the death that's infested our world and even our own hearts. Father, we thank you that you are the one who sees past our fake and calls us deeper. Thank you that you love us even in the midst of our struggle. And you beckon us forward. Pray that we would learn what it means to take up our cross and follow you daily. And lift up the people of new life, the world, the broken world in which we live. I pray that we would be able to make a difference through what we do in our own hearts and what comes from it. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church. God bless you.